You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Pleasure to introduce Timofey Milovanov. Uh, Timofey is actually a graduate of the economics department here at UW, just across the road. He's currently an associate professor of economics uh, at the University of Pittsburgh uh, and wears many other hats as well. So he is the honorary president of the Kiev School of Economics. He's the co founder of Vox Ukraine, which is the preeminent uh, website for public discussion. Uh, in Ukraine. He's uh, deputy chair of the National Bank of Ukraine. Uh, it's just a great pleasure to have him with us. Uh, my understanding is that Timofey is going to be presenting selections from some of his more technical material today, so we can look forward to uh, optimal allocation with ex post verification and limited. That's going to be. That, sorry, no, that's, that's too. Okay. <laughs> no, instead we. <laughs> Scott, you me. We've been down this road. <laughs> yeah. He'll be presenting uh, work on um, international organizations and whether they can improve the quality of governance with uh, evidence from Ukraine. So, Timofey, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. Um, since I am uh, also a public official in Ukraine, I have to make a clarification uh, that I'm. Uh, it, this will doesn't really matter, but I have to. So, it's I'm not uh, a deputy chairman of the National Bank. I am a deputy chairman of the Council of the National Bank. Very subtle distinction, but we have a two-board system, and I'm on the supervisory board, ensuring that these guys don't steal too much money from the Ukrainian public, or try to prevent that from happening. Okay, uh, all right, good. So this is joint work with uh, a lot of people, actually. Uh, and Jen is here, I think. Uh, she's also an alum of the, and Ilya and Jen Murtazashvili. Uh, so they're in Pittsburgh now, and we are trying to write this together. I'm not sure they know I'm presenting. I didn't have time to tell them. Uh, so, you know, they might be surprised. And then there's a team in Ukraine. And uh, the data set for this uh, work has been actually created and constructed in Ukraine uh, in a very comprehensive manner. Um, so what we're interested today is, in, is basically asking a question whether um, the work the IMF is doing in Ukraine has a positive impact. Is it good work or bad? Okay. So this, this uh, you know, this is earlier today, three hours ago. I just made a screenshot of this just before the lecture. Uh, Timothy Ash, I some of you might have heard this name. He is a recognized... Um, economist who speaks with authority on the region and he's been um, doing this for maybe 18 years. He's currently in Bloomberg. Um, well, just the background, I don't know how much you know about Ukraine, but Ukraine has been trying to become democracy for the last 25 or so years since 1999 after it has become an independent uh, as a part of the Soviet Union collapse. Uh, it has not been doing very well. Um, it has experienced a couple of revolutions, one in 2004 and now another one in 2014. Uh, and protests are basically is a norm in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, changed governments are, you know, changing the governments is also a norm. So it's a very puzzling country. Uh, in a sense, um, you know, it's not a small country. It, it, it's, we do not quite know how many people are there in this country. Uh, at this moment, but the estimates are ranging from 35 million people to 45 or to 50 million people, depending on you know what the de facto immigration is. But we know that uh, telecoms have uh, numbers of people registered in uh, 25, 30 millions. That would be the largest telecom. That's the number of clients. So we expect that the number uh, there are three telecoms. Not everyone has every telecom. So, you know, the numbers are substantive. It's a large country um, in terms of territory. It's well positioned. It's close to, to Europe. Uh, it's bordering Poland. 
um, and a number of other Central European countries. Uh, Belarus is to the north, and it is a democracy. Uh, it is a democracy, it's a messy democracy, it's a corrupt democracy, but it is a democracy. It has been struggling to become non-corrupt and prosperous democracy for the last 20 or so years, 25, but it's, it's not happening. So we have had 17 governments over the last 25 years. That means an average government uh, holds the office for a year and a half, okay? So that's a permanent crisis in the country. The country lost Crimea uh, recently and the par parts of the eastern, uh, recently I mean within the last two, three years, rebuilt its military, moved on with structural reforms, and you know, the IMF for the first time uh, has introduced a major, um, major program for Ukraine which has structural reforms embedded in that. So this is unusual for the IMF because the IMF usually is talking about fiscal austerity or things like that, uh, but this time they're actually insisting on the reforms which go beyond uh, their typical mandate uh, and include something like, uh, you know, creating anti-corruption agencies. That's unusual for the IMF. So here's an example. The IMF actually explicitly criticizes a specific uh, law which was supposed to be put to the vote this morning. Okay, This was issued early in the day. Uh, and that means that the IMF is going on hands with reforms which, which are not monetary reforms. You know, they, they have nothing to do with their standard approach. So they, they, they talk about energy efficiency, they want anti-corruption court, they want uh, this law today, the issue at stake was the following. We have an anti-corruption agency in Ukraine currently, and the idea of that anti-corruption agency is that it can prosecute officials, including the members of parliament. So it is insulated from removal by the parliament. Um, to remove the head of the anti-corruption uh, bureau uh, in Ukraine, uh, you actually, to, to a point, you get the parliament, but to remove, you need a negative report by an independent auditor, anti-corruption auditor, who is also protected. So you have to have, you know, double, you, the parliament has to approve a negative report by someone who is independent. And so the parliament tried to vote out that amendment this morning, okay? They just want to, because this guy started investigating <laughs> parliamentaries, okay? And so now the parliament wants to remove. So the IMF, the UN, US actually step in. Uh, and yesterday in the evening, explicitly in this morning, made statements that this would not be appropriate. So yesterday night, the, the law was on the agenda, on the agenda of the parliament. In the morning when I woke up, it was removed. Okay, so someone overnight just took, despite whatever was voted in the parliament to be on the agenda, the bill was removed in the response of pressure. So this is an example where Western pressure actually goes into very technical details and bypasses the um, standard democratic process in Ukraine and in fact achieves something. Whether it's good or bad, you know, that's the question, okay? We want to take, you know, because there, there are arguments, you know, there are arguments that um, maybe we shouldn't do that, okay? Uh, and there are, maybe we should let the fires burn out. Maybe the reason that Ukraine cannot build itself, because it's always the West comes during the critical times, imposes some standard foreign, it's a little bit of populist protectionist argument there, that, you know, it's sovereignty argument, that the West doesn't quite understand Ukraine, doesn't quite know, and we need to let, you know, things go its own way. Maybe it's 25 years, but we need to let Ukraine figure out its own path rather than trying to you know, bring from Washington or from Brussels a bunch of laws uh, which might or might not work at all. Because who, who creates those laws? A bunch of analysts in think tanks in DC and in Brussels, and they have a more or less you know, very limited institutional understanding of what actually is happening in Ukraine. So things could be backfiring, okay? And that's the argument I will hear explicitly in the administration of the president in Ukraine. Two weeks ago, I talked to the deputy head of the administration. That's exactly the argument he's for. He says the West is not helping because the West doesn't understand us. But now we have heard that argument elsewhere in other countries, which then use this argument to isolate themselves and uh, you know, become dictatorships in some sense. Okay? 
So, you know, this is the question. The question is, can international organizations, specifically the IMF, improve the quality of governance in transitional economies by lending expertise? Okay, so that's the question. We, how do you answer this question? So specific, of course it's not going to be, you know, the title is general, but specifically we're going to answer it with respect to Ukraine. Why Ukraine? Well, because first of all, I care about Ukraine, okay? I'm a Ukrainian, my friends died in the East, you know, trying to defend Ukraine, so it's a personal issue for me, okay? But, okay, so why should we care more generally? Because we have, uh, the IMF currently have two big programs, or, you know, over the last five years or so, ten years. This is Greece and Ukraine. Greece is complete failure. The question is whether Ukraine is a failure too, and why it's a failure. Okay, so if, if these two big programs fail, then the question is what is the IMF doing actually? Uh, when you talk to IMF directors, they will actually say that they have a lot of stake at stake. Exactly this argument will be brought up, that we failed in Greece and we can't afford to fail in, in Ukraine. So we're going to stick as much as possible. They actually committed to Ukraine. That means the Ukrainian politicians can push back uh, and actually not do things. Because the IMF is now hijacked or subject to being success. You know, they have to go on with you. So what's happening is that the IMF delays, reviews, but doesn't abandon the program. And the Ukrainian politicians understand that and play this this game, you know, the card. So we are now, we are now, you know, we typically fulfill four to five out of twenty or so benchmarks on the typical review, and then these benchmarks get moved to the next review, and the review is delayed, and so on and so forth. This is what's happening. Anyway, so going back to the argument, you know, so can the IMF in this case be useful? All right, so in favor, this is the argument that um, international organizations are less likely to be captured by special interests that oppose governance reforms or any reforms in, in Ukraine. That's true, I agree. You know, the guys, um, but the, the key is less likely, okay? The key is really not that they're not captured, less likely, okay? They have autonomy. Well, that's a big question, but okay, they have autonomy. And are more likely to offer expertise that domestic institution that in transitional economies tend to be less insulated from political pressures. So the argument is that Ukrainian institutions are not insulated from political pressures. This perspective does not assume that international agencies are free from politics. Rather, it is that they are less likely to be captured and more likely to provide expertise on governance reforms than domestic reforms, because in transitional economies, the current structure itself makes meaningful governance reform more challenging. So the idea is that Ukraine has weak governance, so that makes it difficult to reform yourself. There is a reason why we have governance, which is weak. However, I just told you one reason why the, the IMF might have an agency problem. They have to prove that they are successful. So that weakens their position. And that opens the door to vested interests of Ukraine to play strategically the IMF. And it is true that there are negotiations back and forth all the time. But again, uh, the argument is they are more likely to offer expertise and they are less likely to be captured. But let me offer you a second channel of capture of the IMF. So here is an example, which is actual example from Ukraine last winter. There is an escalation in the east. generated presumably either by Russian forces or by Ukrainian forces. It is not true that uh, it's always Russian forces escalations. Ukrainian troops try to take advantage when Russia is distracted. When there was this little scuffle recently in uh, Lugansk Narodna Respublika in, in, in one of these, you know, they, and Russians intervened to restore control, Ukrainian troops took uh, control over a strategic village. And Russia didn't retaliate much because it doesn't want to show weakness. Okay, that Ukrainians took advantage of, of them. So the, the things are volatile there. But anyway, there is an escalation and the, 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 at that point, I think it was March last year or something, the escalation presumably is of February last year caused by Russians. Okay, nationalists Forces in Ukraine respond by attacking Russian-owned banks. 
Okay? They they come they start protesting in front of Russian owned banks and say, guys, the government has to kick out these banks. Why are we allowing Russian capital to be present in the country while these guys are killing our people, our citizens? The formal answer legally is that these are not Russian owned banks. Because they are owned by some offshore companies and where the final you know beneficiaries are non-Russian citizens. But they are Russian oligarchs, they're just non-Russian citizens. And they have a lot of business in Russia, and they are subject to pressure. All right, so nationalists are saying, nationalist parties are saying, guys, you know, whatever is your legislation, whatever is your legislation, this is really uh, Russian banks. And in fact, it is true because the Security Bureau of Ukraine regularly uh, instructs the Antitrust Committee to block certain mergers with this type of companies because there is influence even today, okay? Okay, so, so, but you know, in the IMF there is a director who represents Russia, all right? And he has been there for a long time, so he's the longest director, longest serving director. He, he's there since the collapse of the Soviet Union. He's very respected, he has lived through many, many uh, presidents actually in Russia. And he has a lot of expertise. So he is actually a mentor to many of the new directors. So then the argument against is that international organization, it's a more standard argument, are out of touch with the local context. They just argue they might be more in touch with the local context than you would assume. But anyway, they could be out of touch with the local context. Support to this alternative hypothesis would like support to the perspective that reforms should originate locally, okay? This perspective is more optimistic about the possibility of meaningful reform to governance, even in the context of poor quality governance. So there is an aspiration by a country to become more democratic, to have a more accountable government, and maybe we'll have to let them work it out, okay? It's like a teenager, you know? Teenager is going crazy, what, you try to discipline him? You might not understand, you know, his interests and his connection, what, you know, so maybe you have to, you know, but the, probably the truth is somewhere in between, but okay, anyway, so. so the hypothesis we're going to advocate here is that reforms championed by the IMF in Ukraine will be better than those that are not. Because there will be reforms which are advocated by the IMF, and there are reforms which are not advocated by the IMF. They are advocated by Central Bank, by the Cabinet, by the uh, European Commission, by the World Bank, by political parties, okay? Okay, so the argument, the hypothesis is that what is done by the IMF is substantively better, okay? And in fact, that's my personal opinion, despite the agency problems I just pointed out. All right, so now we need to have an argument. We need to, we need to somehow prove that the IMF suffers from the challenges, from the agency problem, but doesn't suffer as much as the, the Ukrainian institutions, okay? Okay, so how are we going to prove it? At this point, I can run a survey and ask people and give a bunch of quotes and discuss specific laws, okay? And make a stand that anti-corruption reforms which are introduced by the, the IMF are the best thing which has ever happened to Ukraine. But I really don't have that. You know, I'm, I'm an economist, so I need to have some data or something or a theoretical model, you know, which somehow I can justify the assumptions. And, you know, I cannot offer a qualitative argument. You know, it's just not good enough, okay? So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you that. In 2013, I thought, how are we gonna write a paper in 2017? And so we created all that exercise, which I will describe right now. We created it because we felt that it would be needed, and we can use it for different uh, means or objectives. But here's the exercise. Okay, so we created what's called Index for Monitoring of Reforms in Ukraine, IMOR. It is an analytical instrument aid, aimed at quantitatively evaluate economic reforms in Ukraine. It's been running since the December 2014 bi-weekly. I'll talk about that in a second. It's an expert assessment. 56 experts, it's a panel. They're assessing regulatory environment. And they can grade it. So basically, I have, we have a panel of experts which every two weeks 
assesses everywhere for three years now, assesses everything which has been passed by the parliament, by the cabinet, by the president. And we consider it to be relevant in certain areas that we have picked up. Okay? It has assessed 8,000 laws, decrees, cabinet decisions, and so on and so forth over this course of three years. Okay? Normative acts which came into force during the evaluation period, which have a set enactment date, are evaluated. So we don't evaluate anything else. We evaluate acts, le legislation, which is implemented during that two weeks window. So if something is passed but vetoed or is not signed in the law, by, despite the, uh, the requirement of the Constitution to be signed in the law, we don't evaluate it. Okay, we evaluate only the, those laws which were implemented. All right, so they have to be signed by the government president, ratified by parliament. <coughs> Media rumors, verbal statements by official blog posts, drafts of normative <coughs> acts are not evaluated. We don't evaluate anything which was not, has not come into force, okay? All normative acts are evaluated following their publication. Evaluation is conducted bi-weekly. We have an editorial board of the index. This is a bunch of economists. This actually, you know, this is their job, okay? This is a think tank type of job, which we created a think tank branch in 2014. And they run this product continuously. All right, so there is an editorial board of the index, selects and classifies all the events from the news feed supplied by the news agency Interfax Ukraine. That's the most respectable, reputable uh, agency in Ukraine. So we have that, uh, and they supply us with everything which goes into news as the law. Yeah. Could you just say a little bit more about who the evaluators are? Uh, what's like me, background? people like me. People about like you. They're actually so guys Western trained Ukrainian national. Some, also? about half. About half. About half. These are only Ukrainians. Majority of, them, majority of them are Western trained, but there are some think tanks, some think tank guys who, who either hold masters from Kiev School of Economics or hold masters from somewhere else or business analysts or top, you know. There are some guys who actually work in the agencies in the West, and they, uh, but there are two or three of them because sometimes we need the expertise. Uh, but this is a panel of 56, not all of them engaged all the time. There's about 20, 30 are engaged uh, all the time, all right? So editorial board is three or four people. They select bi-weekly. Uh, this is researchers at the Kiev School of Economics, and uh, at, uh, there are three or four respectable, most respected think tanks from the Western perspective. So these are the guys who, you know, academic director of the Institute for Economic Research and Policy. Been there for 20 years, you know, so she's on the board. The uh, leading, uh, the chief economist of Dragon Capital, that's the uh, second uh, largest investment bank in Ukraine. Uh, but she's also a graduate. She has publications in the Journal of Comparative Economics before she became an analyst. She was admitted to a PhD program or a number in the West, but she decided not to go because of personal reasons. So people like that. It was not easy to find those 50, 60 people and 20 of them to be committed. They're not paid, you know. So, but they're there and they're committed to keep doing it. All right? And... Uh, uh, you know, basically what you get, these guys uh, get uh, the feed from Interfax. Interfax gets, gets them everything which was in two weeks past or introduced. Uh, uh, and they also check it against information from the official internet pages of uh, the parliament, president, cabinet, national bank, and other governmental institutions which have the authority to issue regulations. Okay, something might not be published and, you know, because of the reasons of national security, we might miss that. But as a whole, we get it there, okay? On average, we have 20 guys checking it. So we have a panel of 20 people by weekly doing it. Um, so this is, a, this is a reform process, reform concept. Someone has an idea. My, maybe the government or maybe the IMF. Then there's legislation and there's implementation. We do not have ability or capacity to check implementation on the same scale. So we're not checking that. We can do case studies, but, so, but we can check legislation at this scale. So the expert assessment of key legislature considered as reform. We also have the audit. Uh, once a year, we audit everything which has been in the year to see if we miss something, there are mistakes. So there, 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 there's that too. So the, we only look at five areas which we understand. We don't look at everything. We look at governance, fight against corruption, decentralization, civil service. These are directions. 
We look at public finance, tax system, social safety net, public procurement, efficiency of public spending, and so on and so forth. We look at monetary system, this is macroeconomics. We look at the business environment, competition policy, regulation, international trade, corporate governance, property rights, and an energy sector. These are the five areas at which we look. So you basically, if you are an expert, once in two weeks you get an email which asks, can you please check this, you know, five legislation, and you give your score between, you know, minus five and plus five. We'll talk about that in a second. It's basically, you know, a little page. It's a coded, you know, interface where you have, you have laws on the left, directions on the right, and you can only put a score where the direction and the law intersect, and you have to identify yourself, and um, you are asked to evaluate only those areas in which you consider to be an expert. So the editorial board actually ignores the scores of people who evaluate something which they consider to be out of their expertise. We, we are not explicit about this. We just tell them, don't evaluate what you don't know. But if people feel bad or good about this and evaluate that, we just ignore that. Okay? We don't tell them, you know, next time don't say anything about anti-corruption because we don't think you're an expert. We don't say that. We just, well, you think well, this guy's a macro? So I'm on the central bank, so I'm not allowed to evaluate this. Okay, we're trying to control conflict of interest too. Guys who have a direct conflict of interest are not asked to evaluate. But you know, it could be, we have a scarcity of capital, uh, of human capital there. So experts are not paid, try to control conflict of interest, diversity of experts and panels, reputable partners that, you know, they're coming from think tanks which we believe, they are all employed in places which are good. Uh, selection of experts is careful and loss an internal audit once a year. Okay. This is a grading policy and index composition. We have the aggregation for events, aggregation rules for directions, and aggregation of the index. I think the important parts, uh, the important things here from this slide is first of all, it's a median. We, we, we score will be the median, okay, not the average. Second. Um, if there is a comprehensive law which covers several directions, let's say business environment and monetary policy, you can grade it high on one and low on the other one. Or you can grade it high on both. And that law will get, might be zero, but it might become zero because it's five and minus five on two directions. And we will see that. Or it could be 10 because it's plus five and plus five on both. Whereas if a law is just on one, it will get just plus five. This is done to reward more comprehensive laws, okay? The legislation which is more comprehensive, we want it to, you know, to stand out. However, when we're gonna make the assessment, I'm gonna split it back, the, the scores, by direction. Okay, so that uh, we won't have the bias that uh, IMF will come out as a, as a good uh, guy here because they really have more comprehensive laws, okay? So we'll debias that by splitting it by direction. However, there's also aggregation rule for directions uh, and aggregation of the index. What people can do, they can also, we ask them also to score progress on a direction. It doesn't have to add up, you know. People might feel that they give a lot of uh, small loss, which is one, 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 but they can give a very high score to the direction because they feel a lot of the small scores all add up. Or they can have one big, big law, but then they might give low score to the direction because they think that the direction is... Uh, you know, not moving, you know, just the law is good, but overall much more needs to be done, okay? So it's a little bit of a beauty context, contest, okay? Because this is how people feel about it. I'll, I'll comment on this in a second. So this is how I more dynamics. And we see, this is bi-weekly. And we see it's falling over time. All right, the average is falling. And we can study, you know, if it were in a con talk, I would talk about what we can learn about career concerns of experts, reputational concerns, you know, expert panels and all kinds of things about information transmission and so on. So details there, when you put a score, you do not know what others have put. All right? You will never know as an expert, the panel. The scores, the data is available, but the, the, you will know what was the median afterwards if you want to come back and check. All right, but I think that the stakes are not high enough, so the experts are not doing that. That's my anecdotal, you know, sort of evidence. There is that they're not going back to check. It's a little bit too complicated to check because you have 8,000 laws. You know, if it were one or two, they would go back and check whether they got it right. 
But if it's you know a, de a decree, decree, decree every day, then they're a little bit. I, th I think they're not really checking. But anyway, uh, the index can take values from minus five plus five, and with value above plus two, considered an acceptable pace of reform. This is how we frame them. We tell them in the instruction that above plus two is acceptable. That's what we consider. So not zero, but plus two. Between zero and two is still good. But from their perspective, we would like them to uh, give plus one or plus zero five to the law which they think is good, but not good enough. You know, not, not sort of pushes forward. All right, so methodology in this specific uh, exercise, it will be very simple, just correlation. We're going to check one simple thing. Averages, actually. Database of expert grades for every event in each sector, 56 rounds. Uh, 8,600 observations, uh, 700 plus are from the IMF initiated by IMF, and the rest is not IMF. So 9% in the sample are from the IMF. It's actually a lot of things the IMF is doing there. All right? So it's a very comprehensive uh, program. Data analysis at the level of single ex event expert grade to the bias from this comprehensiveness. 57 experts in total, 17 events. Uh, people didn't identify themselves, so it's very small. Okay. So that's where we, we, since we don't, you know, we cannot identify this different expert or the same expert, you know. I suspect this is was about five was me. Because sometimes I don't have time and I just submit something. Okay, anyway. 53 experts, 22 experts graded more than 100 events. So, you know, there are really 20 experts who are consistent. You see? Bunch of committed guys and, you know. And uh, then some experts basically, you know, tried and quit. All right. An average grade of the experts, well, there's more volatility among the guys who are just you know, random. That's because there's just more volatility. You know, they could hit random times when they're checking, okay? On average, an event is evaluated by just a couple of experts, two, three, four. Because, you know, if you have 20 experts evaluating an event uh, a week, two weeks, there'll be five events or seven events or 10. Three of them will be in macroeconomics and two of them will be in business regulation. So you might end up, you know, we have more macroeconomists and fewer anti-corruption experts. So there'll be a little bit of that, okay? So individual events, you know, there could be biases at the level of the individual events. Okay, so one expert, maximal number of events graded. Average expert who graded less than 100 is they're more optimistic. The guys who get involved, they're a little bit more, I, I don't know, realistic or something. Pessimistic, okay? But you know, I graded them myself and it's difficult because some of this <coughs> you give up because if you don't know stuff, you basically have no idea what to put, you know? It could be, a, it's 8,000 events. This are, they could be very technical, you know? The law removed some barrier and added something else. You know, is it a good thing or a bad thing? If you're not inside this, if you don't understand what's going on, it's hard to, you know, give an assessment. Plus, these laws typically are done, you know, whether they're positive or negative laws, they're typically, you know, framed as something good for the society, right? They're always, it's always in the interest of the society that we pass a law, right? So it's always, you know, support, introduce, create competition, you know, invest and all of that. You know, and so if you don't understand the details, you don't find where it's hidden. And sometimes the law would be 27 pages. So, you know, that's why I think uh, this reflects the fact that you can sell things to people who are not very involved. Okay, that, that's my interpretation. I do not have proof for that, but that's, that would be my answer, okay? People who are a little bit more superfluous, they look at the law and it looks better than, you know, to an expert on average. Okay, so this is by daily, because we know when these guys actually make a vote, when, when they submit, because they have a period of two, three days when submit. Bad things could happen during that time, for instance, uh, like, you know, there's an escalation in the East or the president fires someone or hire someone, you know, so people can... This is a post-revolutionary environment in the country which is currently in an open military conflict. So the experts are subject to, you know, emotions. So that's why we split it by day, okay? Not by week. Because we, 
we are not really the trend in it fully because we, we don't know, you know, maybe we can do the sentiment, the overall sentiment on the day. We can do that and try to see if, it's, if it matters. Interesting question potential. But anyway, this is by day and you see the volatility drops and it's more consistency somehow, you know, the bounce. But it's also reflecting the fact that uh, the fight was strong in the beginning. You know, there were very comprehensive reforms and serious pushbacks, and it's now converging to some equilibrium where it's a little bit back and forth. It's the same with the military conflict. In the first couple of years, there was sometimes a lot of volatility, violence, sometimes not much, and, but now it's more or less stable with some kind of steady state, okay? So the reform, I think, converges, at least in the perception of the experts, towards a steady state. All right, so this is... Um, Green is IMF, and uh, orange is non-IMF. That's also by daily, okay? IMF and non-IMF. Okay? IMF sometimes is not well received by the experts, okay? Okay, so this is the last two slides. This is just the numbers. So this is your mean on the IMF dummy. It's going to be 1.9 versus 1.3. So the IMF loss on average have been assessed as higher, and actually given that the average is 1.4, that's a major jump on those 10% or 9% of loss. And if you take the median, it's 2 versus 1, okay? So the median is graded as acceptable pace of reform uh, by experts, whereas the what everything else is, is not, you know, it's a little bit too slow, okay? Okay, and you know, there is variability. The minimum, minus five, the max is five on each of them. All right, and then, you know, we can, we can check by the direction, okay? That's essentially, that's it. So governance and anti-corruption. That's the major, that's the original question on governance. You know, does the IMF do anything good? 2 versus 1.41, okay? With an average 1.46, similar picture. If you look at public finance, the difference is smaller. If you look at uh, monetary policy, the policy, the difference is even higher, as expected. Well, you know, not higher, yeah. Because the IMF is strong on, on monetary. All right? They're not doing very well or much better relative to governance on... Uh, so it's anti-corruption and the monetary, not fiscal, that they're doing fine. Industrial organization also, and trade policy, so open markets. And then energy independence, also, all, almost nothing because it's not them. It's actually the World Bank, okay? Energy independence is World Bank's uh, thing. Okay? So that's it, you know. I don't know what to make out of it. <coughs> I think there is the evidence, frankly, that in a comprehensive, comprehensive ass assessment, the experts consider the Western-trained Ukrainian experts, again, Western-trained Ukrainian to, to sort of have both sides of the aisle, you know. They consider IMF, they rate IMF uh, uh, legislation consistently higher than in the areas where uh, the IMF is strong. That's the standard IMF area. And this is the experimental IMF area in this country, <coughs> anti-corruption structural reforms. <coughs> so in the experimental area, the IMF is also doing well, but not as well as in the classic area. Yes? Are these assessments made prior to implementing the law? Yes. Do they ever go back after the law has been implemented? Not yet. That's what we're going to do now, this next year. We're going to try to do that. It's not always clear what the impact of the law. Absolutely. Or let me say that differently. You may think the impact of the law will be X, but 18 months later after the law has been implemented, it turns out to be something quite I agree. Different. I agree completely with that. Um, the assess, yeah, you know, it's just difficult to do. You know, get this 20 or 50 people to assess implementation of 8,000 laws. You know, one thing is to read the law and say, okay, does it sound like a good idea? Another thing is to actually see what's being done. Because this, th there are serious reforms, you know, like the fiscal decentralization, you know. We now moved about 20% of budget, you know, to the regions. 
and what they do with these budgets. You know, there is an argument uh, that it might actually do more corruption, more, more bad than good to the region because there is less observability. So you know, it's hard. Does the does the legislative branch of the Ukrainian government no? see these assessments? Yes. Do they react to them? Do some. They, the government has some. changed this law prior to implementation. We can prove that, but I know they see it. I know that um, at the cabinet there were discussions. Advisors to the cabinet said, "Okay, you know, we want to make sure that this take the score come out high." There is anecdotal evidence like that. Uh, I actually know people who have tried to push that within the cabinet the, to get you know to use that as a measure of something. The parliament is 420 people. You know, this think tank. Uh, has some influence over them. But, uh, you know, for instance, yesterday or the day before yesterday, we were able to move 30 votes against some law. But we try not to do that. We try not to influence, because then we become, you know, like politicians. So these guys stay away. You know, they, these are not the... The IMOR is... It's, a, it, it's also comprehensive. There is a Kiev School of Economics. There is this Vox Ukraine, which is advocacy. IMOR is a product of Vox Ukraine. Vox Ukraine also runs fact check. But it's a... They're marketed as different products. Fact checking is one thing. I more is more for nerds on the site. Um, so we don't, we you know, the, because there's a real friction between these guys trying to advocate the laws and then assessing them, right? So there could be all kinds of punishment and retaliation, strategic considerations. So we try to keep different people or have them assess in different, you know, so get them a little bit confused by the sheer number of. Uh, of different decrees, right? Uh, does, does the taxation of business and citizens fall in one of those categories? Yes, we can check. Here. Tax system is in public finance. Um, I think it matters, but not US, too many uh, people. Congress as yeah. well? Um, so did you rate the the US well, you give me 60 experts who are willing to, to, to work for free for many years in the United States, sure. Or you give me money to procure those 60 experts, sure. You know, this is based on enthusiasm and attempts to sort of change something, or at least to understand something. But uh, again, the quality of this. Still, it's the best we've got in terms of uh, uh, outside of... Um, Statements, you know, that this is good or this is what's happened. There is some follow-up. Uh, let me just on some individual laws, like uh, procurement or something. We do have report. We, we have made assessments, ex explicit assessments, what the you know, let's say market price in the air, you know, in the industry is, and what after the introduction of the law, before the introduction. What so that is done in objective manner, but it's a selected. You know, we we can pick up the top, let's say, twenty laws, and we can assess them. That we can do. But all 8,000, um, yeah, there was a question there, and then I'll come back to you in a sec. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that the majority of experts has a, are Western trained, but there are still some people who are not, right? They only got education. Well, it depends on your definition of Western trained, of course, because I teach both in Pittsburgh at the Kiev School of Economics. The question is, um, these guys who are from Ukraine and not Western trained, uh, they don't have PhDs, that's what it means, right? So let me pull the panel of experts. If, if I have internet on this computer, uh, I'm gonna, I'll, I will be able to answer this question. But you know, the question was actually: Is there any systematic difference in their answers? You know, depending on not that we what, have been able your to identify. No, no. You, you see, the, what happens is, let's say you have Veronika Mavchan, a specific person who has master in economics from the Kiev School of Economics. She's the best in the country, and she's considered to be, she's known in Europe, in the EU Commission, in the Brussels think tank, for being the expert on uh, European Association Agreement. All right? This is her job. This is her bread. Now, she's not Western trained, meaning that she doesn't have a PhD, but she does have a master from uh, Western style program. That's the same type, you know, we teach we use Muscle and Winston Green for microeconomics. We, you know, I don't know what they use in macro, I have no idea, but they have standard, you know, this is standard classes, and these are people who teach, they are all PhD trained, you know? They are all graduates of this school. So let, let me get it in a second, I'll, I'll, 
I am more This side, I, I don't really remember. Yeah, okay, so we even have a separate site from the Vox, Vox Ukraine, and uh, I need to get it in English. And then I'm going to go into experts, and this is our panel of the experts. Yeah, so Betli Alexander, she has a master from Kiev School of Economics. She has Institute for Economics. That's a leading think tank in the area in public finance. This is an independent expert, very, very big on anti-corruption. So he's actually a public figure, but he's more on the reasonable side. He's coming from IT. This is that uh, chief economist I mentioned who has GCE publications. Uh, this is also great. He's, he's well known for the budget. He's one of the best. Uh, so yeah, this is, you know, Yuri, he is now full at uh, Berkeley, one of the most cited microeconomics in the world. Uh, this is National Institute for Strategic Studies, this, I have no idea who that is. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not on the board, you know, selecting these guys, they have criteria how they select them. Yeah, we have some foreigners, okay, so I was wrong. Here is uh, Balash. He's from Ken uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's actually not based in Ukraine, although he is. Uh, so we have some guys. There will be some guys from the IMF, actually. But we don't allow them to. Yeah, some guy. OK. Look, here's this guy is actually an officer in the IMF. OK? He's a Ukrainian. So that might be. We can take him out to check on the monetary policy. So things like that. Yeah. Mm. This this not Western trained, but one of the best economists considered to be local. So it's a, it's a diverse group. <laughs> yes. So um, two questions. So so first of all, I mean si similar to uh, uh, Dima's question. I mean so so when the, any kind of rating thing like this, where you have different com configurations rating different laws, you have the issue of whether your patterns are a function of who actually does the rating. So one way to handle that would be to do equivalent like a fixed effects model where you have a rater fixed effect and you, so you norm within the rater all the ratings and then you calculate like a within rating z-score or something like that, just a simple approach instead of just taking the medium. And, and have you done that kind of exercise yeah, to see how sensitive they are? We have, uh, I don't trust that. I, so my, so the, the, this is fine. We, we will. We, those things are okay, more or less. You know, uh, I, what, this is my concern. My real concern is that the guys over time become more pessimistic. Mm -hmm. You know, they were all excited in 2014, and they are a little bit less excited. And this might be this feedback loop of, of implementation. That in the beginning they looked at the laws and said this is a great law. But two years later they saw that this law didn't do much. Okay, so they are rating the same law as a lower law, taking into account now, they revise their beliefs about the chances of implementation of that law. This is my concern. This is, I think this is the, re, re, the most serious, at least from my perspective, concern. Because, uh, so, so I believe result that they, I'm, you know, this is not good argument in, in academia, but, uh, and that's why we do research to find when our beliefs are wrong, you know. So, but I think the result that the IMF is doing better is robust. We can also make a qualitative argument. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, guys in, in DC who, who will say this is, you know, so the assessments are consistent with what the perception is by analysts, qualitative. But I think the real issue is whether this analyst in DC an analyst inside the IMF and the analyst inside this panel are subject to the same trend of bias towards being optimistic because it's democracy and stuff, and later it's corruption and stuff, and so they're basically subject to all of that. So this we will try to address by trying to have these guys in a random manner, splitting them in groups, trying to have them reassess this loss is see if there is some absolute trend happening among the groups. So we will have them assess the same laws to check for the consistency that they have assessed in a, in a randomized. So we're gonna do you know, an experimental treatment in, in a sense over the next year. If we pick up the trend, 
And I think we will pick up, again, this is my prior hypothesis going into that, that there will be a trend. The question is really if the uh, marginal differences, you know, the differences between the assessment of the loss will stay consistent in the prior assessment and today's. Because then that would be, you know, I expect the result, the hypothesis, that the absolute values of the loss are not important, but the differences between them will stay consistent. You had a comment. So I get the sense in listening to you that the IMF is proposing laws in many different areas. Some of them get implemented, some of them don't get implemented. The IMF is also providing financial benefits to the country. In exchange for that. Well, that's my question. If, the, uh, if certain IMF laws don't get implemented, they get rejected, does the IMF withhold some of these benefits? Yeah. So there's a natural, there is a predilection towards wanting to get these benefits and therefore wanting to implement the IMF laws. Among the experts, you mean, or in general, by the Amongst the government and maybe amongst these experts as well. The government wants the benefits. So the government will naturally look favorably upon these IMF laws. Well, you know, in equilibrium, I think, the, the government would be indifferent between passion this laws or not. Because what the, the, this is a bargaining process. Now we get into something much more real, re, much more serious. This is not the game in which the IMF proposes the laws, the government then says, yes, we accept that or not. And this, the, you know, the, the IMF doesn't have that amount of bargaining power to impose the laws. It's not a posted price offer in Amazon where we'll say this loss and for this money or nothing. No, the IMF comes in with, with a bunch of experts in DC and in the European mission. In fact, they come to Ukraine, make an assessment, work with the Minister of Finance, with the Central Bank mostly, and a little bit with, uh, with the government more generally. And then they impose a number of, there will be benchmarks. They call them benchmarks, 13, 20 benchmarks. Then the, uh, the question of what these benchmarks are and the bargaining process starts, how to implement these benchmarks. The benchmark might be, you know, your fiscal you know, budget deficit has to be 2.3% by the year. Or, you know, you have to remove this endemic distortion in the economy. And if you don't hit these benchmarks, what happens? Well, in, pra in theory, you should not get money. In practice, you get delayed. You get delayed. In practice, because in the beginning, of the talk, I was talking about the importance for the IMF. They're committed to the program. So what they're doing, they're constantly reneging on this. The government typically fulfills out of 13 or 20 benchmarks, four or five, okay? That's why we're about 12 months, 15 months, actually behind the schedule on the original program. Because every time it's delayed by three or four months, benchmarks get pushed forward. So for instance, recently, one of the benchmarks which is fundamental to the IMF, it was the first argument to basically sit at the table of negotiations with Ukraine was that the Ukrainian government removes the distortion in the gas market. That's important because the gas market, when the prices were low for the public, that generated incentive demand for Russian subsidies, you know, lower price, so there's all kind of national independence, energy independence, secret hidden budget deficit, because basically you have the state monopolies providing at subsidized prices, then running a budget deficit in the state monopoly, not subject to oversight by the parliament, has to be financed by the central bank, generates macroeconomic issues. By a Russian bank or by a... No, by Ukrainian central bank. Uh, so the, the condition for that was to start the problem that that has to be removed. And that has to be removed means, you know, 27 different things. 13 of which were done, 15, and some fundamental ones. And recently the government went back on one of the important ones, on changing prices or price distortion, something. It just went back because the international prices went up, there's populism pressure from the opposition. Uh, they say, we're not gonna increase utility tariffs. The IMF said, you know, excuse me, you promised. And they said, no, 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 we promised to remove endemic distortions, which we are doing. If that specific implementation, you and us got it wrong. Okay? 
Now, I expected at this point that this is the fundamental thing for the IMF said, you know, guys, thank you very much. I'll see you in 10 years, okay? But of course, that's not going to happen. The IMF came, and the government understands that, and so now they're discussing maybe anti-corruption court. Maybe we'll get something else. Does the IMF help financially in the form of loans? They make loans? Yeah. They give loans. This is, they give loans. And do they actually have a realistic expectation that they'll be paid back? Oh, they've been paid back. This year we paid back more than we received. So the net payment to the IMF is, is actually not in favor of Ukraine because we're delaying. Okay? So now, it's, you know, if we really go into this, we will never be able to say anything with, with the real, because it's a bargaining game. Do other experts biased by this? You know, I don't know, probably to an extent. Uh, does the EU, but then, you know, if I take, I'll take your question in a second, but if I take your arguments, uh, uh, you know, in good faith, we just lost 600 million macroeconomic support from the EU. So the other guys who are initiating there, like the World Bank, the EU, they also provide substantive benefits of the same type. So then we can tell, you know, still, you know, World Bank or the EU Commission, they want things from us, okay? Does the IMF want better things from us from the perspective of the experts then? Because the rumor has it that the EU and the World Bank in the European branch, essentially on macro, outsources everything to, to the IMF. That's the, you know, the IMF team is stronger. So in the end, we might be assessing that, whether the IMF team is stronger. But the interesting case is almost no one disputes, we're just proving what's known, that the IMF team is stronger. And this is in favor of this original hypothesis, which I had. Hold on. This is in PowerPoint. Here. That the, the IMF has the expertise. That's what we might be checking. And that, even though it's helicopter expertise from other countries, it's still perceived by domestic best experts. That's a good expertise. Okay, that, again, I understand, subject to your concern, but then we can try to compare it to the World Bank, which is trying to do the same, and to the EU Commission, which is trying to do the same, and to EBRD, European Bank for uh, Research and, uh, and Construction and Development, which is trying to do that. So, and we have to do that. Uh, okay, uh, but the question, really, the interesting question, is whether they're also doing well on anti-corruption, because the IMF doesn't have expertise on anti-corruption. That's not their cup of tea, really, fundamentally. And they perceive to be well. Uh, and, you know, okay, so what to make out of this? It's, it's not quite, yeah. So I oh, yeah, 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 sorry, I, you had a question. And I just you. want to go back to the, the topic of IMF loans. Um, mm -hmm. Are those charged interests? And if yeah. so, is there like a penalty for defaulting on them? What is the process for that? There is a penalty for default, and we have not defaulted on, on that. Um, why are you asking? The, oh, what, I need more specific because we also have uh, the government issued euro bonds and all kinds of other things. I'm and if sovereign defaults, uh, you know, it's going to trigger a bunch of. It, it's not just IMF default. If we're going to default on the IMF, it's going to trigger a default on everything else. Of, uh, so, so it's going to be the country default on a bunch of things. So the costs are high. The interest is there. Interest is uh, your standard between one and two percent. You know, IMF is a really low. I'm asking because you know often in many countries IMF is at least by the public looked upon negatively. Even if what they're actually doing might be positive, the IMF sort of has a bad reputation of coming in and you know making demands of countries in order for their yeah, support. Yeah. Um, so is everyone else. So I guess my, my question is, you know, is there an incentive if you know, the government changes to say, we're not going to pay back these loans, we already have the money, it's not that we're bankrupt. There is, the, there is that too. I mean, okay, I don't know how it's going to connect. You know, the data I have is the data I have. But uh, recently, the government has, has chosen not to fulfill some of the benchmarks of the IMF delaying, in fact, the next tranche, and missing out on 600 million European support. But they went to the market, to the international market, and placed $3 billion of European bonds at the interest rate of 7%. Ukrainian bonds? They've just been placed over two or three last month. Is Ukraine, so part, of, is Ukraine part of the EU? No. But they are subject to the legislation and the controls and the uh, London courts, 
and uh, it's at 7%, so the government was willing to basically charge the future generations, because it's future generations which will pay back, at the expense not cutting down some expensive social benefits today. They would have gotten the same amount of funds from the IMF faster at 1% or 2%. But they have chosen to get it seven. So it's not true that the IMF has that much power, you know. No, they're like any lender. Like exactly. They create covenants. Is yeah, exactly. We're going to lend you this exactly. money. We're going to yeah. create covenants. And if you break a covenant, we either agree that it's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. So, so again, to address your concern, we need to check it against other lenders who are in the panel. And we have a lot of them there, too. Yes. So, so that was my question. So you started at the top with this broad question about and you uh, hear international organizations and you end up co comparing the IMF to all of the laws. So why not at least pull out the other yeah, internationally we have sponsored yeah. laws uh, so that you're comparing? So we, have, we haven't done it on the event base. We had the average. Uh, BRD is doing well, European Bank for Research and Development. The World Bank is not so well. And I want, and there might be the problem that what the World Bank wants is the land reform and some other things which are not being passed. It might very well be that the World Bank wants, but we, we, we do not have you know, detailed event, event analysis yet on the World Bank. Uh, we will get it there. But uh, the World Bank is not doing as well. Uh, and I think because the laws they really want are not being passed. But in your control, so in the, in the results you presented, you have IMF and then non-IMF. Non so some of the non-IMF laws are other international yes, organizations yes, yes. laws. And some of them are better than there's heterogeneity there, yes. Right, okay. So I mean divorce laws of course are by the parliament. Okay, cool. That, that, that's, but you, you know, what you, you, you don't maybe, is that why you don't want to do that? Because you don't want to show that uh, empirically? No, well, I'm, you know, like I'm trying to push <laughs> the Ukrainian sovereign today. But seriously, the divorce laws are by the Ukrainian parliament. Which are initiated not by any of the donors, okay? And you know, again, you can say that the experts uh, don't like Ukrainian Parliament, but I won't be able to address that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, going a little bit back to what was just said, so you're essentially trying to you're you're assessing the your big question, the quality of of uh, World Bank uh, or yes. in, in Ukraine based on only on the laws that were actually passed, right? Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there is a number of laws which have su not been suggested passed. by IMF, uh, which were not passed. World Bank, and were not passed, right? Yes. So kind of, I think, you know, the better uh, estimate of the quality of the job is done that is, that is done by, by international organizations would be somehow comparing uh, both not comparing, but considering both past and non-past, like everything that they proposed. Because what the government is doing is they probably select the best part of the proposed laws and only accept only them, and then they reject the, the kind of worst kind of worst worst part of suggestions. Yes, absolutely correct. So yesterday, what happened? Ukraine extended the moratorium on land sales for another year. That's exactly what the World Bank doesn't want. It's also now in the IMF. Because the World Bank went to the IMF and asked, could you also put it in the IMF, by the way? These things now happen. Because, and the IMF said, this is not our, our area, but OK, we're going to put it there because to help you out. That's what's happening. So this was the past. You know, there, there have been five laws put in. One was extend the moratorium for five years. The other one was for four years. The next one for seven years. And all they have just been put in in order to make one year moratorium look okay. All right? I talked to MPs. We issued a letter yesterday saying that you guys are crazy, you know? Uh, so MPs said this is was just done on Monday. On Monday, they introduced all these laws. Because there's no discussion last Friday about extended moratorium. On Monday, they introduced. On Tuesday, the committee approved it. And it was voted on Thursday, okay? That's how we just adopted our new <laughs> <laughs> You see, it's not so different. You know, in the end of the day, not so different. Right? No, no, that's true. This is, you know, 
<laughs> so that's what McCain is, I, I've been told, complains about, that the old process, I mean, Ukraine has never been an old process, you know? So maybe you're converging to us, <laughs> not uh, we are converging to you. Uh, well, anyway, in any case, uh, we're gonna assess those seven laws as very negative. But, you know, the experts are gonna be demoralized. Because they're gonna say, why am I assessing this bullshit? Because we know it's bullshit. So, uh, there was a co- like something, some, some about judicial system. To, to, you know, we don't have a filibuster in Ukraine, but we can propose 600 amendments. And the law requires each of the amendments to be voted for. Okay? So it's an open rule by default. We don't have a closed rule as there is in, in the U.S. Uh, legislature. So the committee cannot block, uh, or the rules committee cannot block this. Asset. So instead of using filibuster, we can propose, actually, I think there was a law which there were 6,000 amendments proposed, okay? The only way to not, and there was a week in the parliament where no one was there because everyone knew it was a joke. There were like 20 people in, in the room out of 420. And the pu- poor uh, chair, you know, the speaker had to read all of those and say, and everyone would vote. And there was, of course, there were no votes. Because no one even showed up, but they had to do it. So they, they stopped the parliament for a week. So, you know, while your idea sounds great and I, you know, wholeheartedly support it, I think there's so much noise in this proposed legislation that we won't be able to identify in any objective way. At least I don't see a way. The laws which are serious and the laws which are just publicity framing or, you know, strategic rule manipulation. So, yes? I wonder if this not too far off the subject, but I wonder if you could say something about the Kiev School of Economics, its background, its history, its reputation, its degree of independence, and so forth. Excellent question. Degree of independence. Okay, the Kiev School of Economics it was formed in 1996 by a consortium of Eurasia Foundation, MacArthur, Ford, and a bunch of those. It's a, your typical uh, Eastern European school, ma- Western master program run by uh, U.S. But it, uh, was, it wasn't a successor to any communist era. Say it again? No. It wasn't, it wasn't a successor to any. No, no. I know a, a number of Eastern European countries. No, it's not a successor to any. It's like New Economic yeah. School in Moscow, or yeah, Sergei yeah, yeah. in Prague, or Central European University in Budapest. This is your typical Western type uh, market economics program. 600 graduates, uh, 20% got PhDs, mostly in the US. Why don't we thank uh, our speaker? Thank you very much. Everyone.